Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Want to know who's going to be taking the oath of office in January? According to my prediction, the next U.S. president will be. You'll hear from Professor Alan Lichtman, who's correctly predicted the outcome of every election since 1994. We'll talk about his 13 key system and who he thinks will win. Plus, according to the doomsday clock, we are very close to midnight or total human annihilation. We've never been here before. Why? If we're doing stupid things and we continue to do stupid things, the problems are going to get worse. Professor Herb Lynn of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists Doomsday Clock tells us the time and how we got here. Plus, find out how you can affect the outcome of all of this. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's on the next Audacious, after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. What is the 2020 presidential election and the doomsday clock, you know, the calculation that tells us which technologies and conditions may annihilate us all, have in common? Your vote impacts the outcome. First, let's look at the election. A thousand years ago in 2016, Alan Lichtman, author of The Keys to the White House, A Surefire Guide to Predicting the Next President, faced a lot of heat for his prediction that Donald Trump would win the White House. In fact, he has correctly predicted the outcome of every election since 1994, using a system of 13 keys. Lichtman says the 13 keys are statements that favor victory for the incumbent party. When five or fewer statements are false, the incumbent party is predicted to win. When six or more are false, the challenging party is predicted to win. So I asked him to go down the list. Okay, so we start with what I call the four political keys. Key one is the mandate key based on midterm elections. And we know Republicans took a pasting in 2018. Key one is false. Key two, was there a big nomination contest for the incumbent party nomination? True, none. Incumbency, is he the sitting president? Of course he is, true. Key four, no significant third-party campaign. Forget Kanye West. This is a two-party race. True. So he only loses one of the four political keys. Then we get to the more substantive keys about governing. The short-term economy. The economy is not in recession. False. The economy is in a deep recession. Long-term economy. Real per capita growth at least equals that of the two Obama terms. That looked really good until we hit the relentlessly negative growth of 2020, false. Policy change, with his big tax cuts and even more importantly, with his executive orders on the environment, on immigration, on withdrawing from international accords. Trump certainly has changed policy from the Obama years, so true. Social unrest, again, that was looking quite good in 2019, but now there is social unrest raging across the land, which Trump has only fanned not quelled by his refusal to deal with demands for social and racial justice, so false. Then we get to my favorite key, the scandal key. 
you know, when I predicted Trump's win in 2016, I have this note right here on my wall over my shoulder, which says, Professor, congrats, good call, with big Sharpie signature, Donald J. Trump. But he didn't get far enough to understand the meaning of the keys. And one of the things I predicted was given his cavalier attitude about the truth and the law, that he would be impeached. He's now only the third US president ever to be impeached. There are lots of other scandals swirling around him. Key nine is false. Key 10, was there no big foreign or military failure? No Bay of Pigs, no 9-11, no Pearl Harbor, true. However, key 11, was there a big splashy foreign or military success? No, his ventures in North Korea and the Middle East and the Persian Gulf and Venezuela have gone nowhere. Yes, he did kill General Suleimani, but I promise you, 95% of the American people don't even know who he is anymore. And it certainly didn't do much to diffuse tensions in the Persian Gulf. So key 11, false. Key 12, the incumbent party candidate is charismatic. My most controversial call. I deem that false for the following reason. This key has a very high bar. We're talking about the once in a generation inspirational candidate, like on the Republican side, Theodore Roosevelt, or more recently, Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Trump's a great showman. He has a lot of flash. But the problem is, unlike Reagan, who brought in all those Reagan Democrats, he has very narrow appeal. His approval rating is in the low 40% range. His strong approval rating, which is more pertinent, is in the 25 to 30% range. 60% or more of the American people don't think he's honest and trustworthy and don't like him. So that key is false. Key 13, the challenging party candidate is not charismatic. Joe Biden's a decent guy. He's got a lot of experience. He's no Franklin Roosevelt or John F. Kennedy. So that one is true. That adds up to seven negative keys or seven false statements. One more that is necessary to predict that Donald Trump will be the first president since Bill Clinton beat George H.W. Bush in 1992 to fail in a re-election bid. And according to my prediction, the next U.S. president will be Joe Biden. At what point in the last year did you think that Trump would win the most keys? Well, I didn't make a final prediction because it was too early, but as of late 2019, Trump had only four negative keys out against him, too short of predicting his defeat. But then, of course, America was faced with crises, the pandemic and the cry for social and racial justice. Trump didn't understand that it's governing that counts. And instead of dealing substantively with these issues, which would have been good for the country, and ironically good for his re-election, he reverted to his 2016 playbook when he was the challenger and tried to talk his way out of these crises. And the result was bad for the nation and bad for his re-election because it turned three more keys against him enough to predict his defeat. Never in the history of the United States has any incumbent party suffered such a dramatic and sudden reversal of fortune. Now, you came out with your prediction on August 5th. How did you pick that date? And this is it. Like, he can't, you're saying that he can't do anything to change this at this point. That was right after the second quarter economic numbers came out, which reaffirmed the recession. It was too 
sharply negative quarters. In fact, the second quarter was the worst economic decline in recorded history. So that affirmed two of my keys enough to predict his defeat. And I made my prediction in my New York Times video, which I recommend to all of you. It's a lot of fun shortly after that. Now, the keys are the big picture. They have nothing to do with the polls, who's up and down in the campaign, speeches, debates, smear tactics, campaign tricks. But there are two things that keep me awake at night that are outside the realm of the keys or any prediction system. One is voter suppression. Donald Trump's base is old white guys like me. Well, you can't manufacture more old white guys. You can't make us live to be 150 years old. But what you can do is try to restrict the rising democratic voter base of young people and minorities. And Trump is very open about doing that. He has falsely attacked mail-in voting, which is a reasonable alternative in the pandemic. Of course, where he thinks it'll help him, like in Florida, North Carolina, he says it's perfectly okay. He installed one of his big donors as head of the post office, who has no qualifications, and already seems to be throttling the post office and making it much more difficult to deliver ballots on time. Second thing that keeps me awake at night is Russian intervention. The Russians are back, and they have learned a lot in four years. This time they may even try to get into our registration rolls, and heaven forbid. But one thing we know for sure is that, as in 2016, Trump is going to welcome and exploit to the hilt any Russian intervention on his behalf. And this is really ironic because this goes to the sovereignty of the United States. And who have been the greatest, loudest advocates of U.S. sovereignty? Conservative Republicans. They've opposed international accords on the rights of women, the rights of children. When Trump withdrew from the International Small Arms Treaty, signed by almost every other nation in the world, he said, he's doing this to protect American sovereignty. And yet Russian intervention is a vastly greater threat to American sovereignty than these treaties. And Trump is subverting, knowingly undermining our sovereignty to promote his own selfish political interests. Now, Trump was in 2016 and now unprecedented in so many ways. And you've said before that we've never had someone running for president who has spent his life enriching himself at the expense of others, um, a serial liar, incited violence against his opponents, embraced as role models, hostile foreign dictators. Among all those exceptions, though, your system still held in 2016. But That's right. I was worried about it, but I stuck by my predictions. I did a great interview with uh, Shankar Vedantam, the scientific guru of NPR, and he's quoted as saying, despite all the heat he took, Dr. Lichtman persisted in the last tumultuous weeks of the campaign in predicting a Trump win. And you can imagine predicting a Trump win, not an endorsement, a prediction, did not make me very popular in 90% plus Washington, D.C. But I'm going to share with you the secret of being a good forecaster. It's not knowing history, although you got no history. It's not knowing math, although you got no math. It's not knowing politics, or you got no politics. The hardest thing is putting aside your own political preferences. And I've striven to do that. Going into 2020, I've picked four Republicans on my system and five Democrats. 
that is as even-handed, as impartial as you can get. If I just predicted according to my political preferences, you wouldn't be talking to me. That's right. (laughs) Your book sales would be terrible. But I do want to know that because there's never been an American election amidst so much chaos. And it's so chaotic that I don't even need to name all this stuff. You already know how chaotic it is right now. How much faith do you have in your system during the most chaotic era that most of us have ever lived through? I have great faith in my system, but I am worried about voter suppression and Russian intervention. But I have some recommendations. We need litigation, whether at the federal level or in lots of the states, to make sure that any ballot postmarked by election day, not received by election day, must be counted. That's a valid ballot. It's cast in time. Might that delay the election results a day or two? Maybe, maybe not. But let's not forget, Republicans embraced the Supreme Court decision in December, many weeks after election day, and had no problem with that. That's voter suppression. And I would also advise people to deal with voter suppression. Vote. However you can vote, vote. Encourage your friends to vote. Encourage your family to vote. Get involved in voter registration drives, in voter turnout drives. As far as the Russians are concerned, Congress needs to step up. It is a national disgrace that they're not giving the states the aid they need to blunt Russian interference. And I would advise every voter to take social postings that seem, you know, a little bit strange, a little bit too pro-Trump with a huge grain of salt because they could well be coming from the Russians. You know, Trump denounces all the mainstream media, New York Times, CNN, as fake news. That's not fake news. What is fake news is what Trump embraces. And that is all the falsehoods coming from the Russians. You were talking about how the keys don't include any polling and that the efforts of the so-called political industrial complex, like the media campaign ads, the political spin, the debates, the babies being kissed. You say that none of that has any effect on what happens on election day and that the outcome is based on governing, not campaigning. So why do you think so many resources have been poured into the political industrial complex and its PR campaigns for so long? Why, if it doesn't make a difference on election day, why do we still do it? Why do we still fall for it to the degree to which we do? In 1961, the retiring president, Dwight Eisenhower, warned about the military-industrial complex, which is sustained by a so-called unbreakable iron triangle. At one point in the triangle are the defense contractors who make huge money. Another point is the uh, military that wants all this equipment. And the third point is the members of the Congress and the Senate who want military contracts in their states and their districts. I've identified now the political industrial complex, which has its own iron triangle that's really hard to break. One point is the pollsters, the consultants, the handlers, the hucksters, who make huge amounts of money based on the conventional wisdom. If I'm right, they become irrelevant. Second point is the media, which has to cover the election day by day and makes huge amounts of money. And I'm not criticizing anyone. I'm just saying There are very powerful incentives here. You in the media can't just say, Lickman says Biden's going to win. See you on November 3rd. (laughs) Are the candidates who buy into all of this conventional 
wisdom. I've been shouting for years about how to break this. And of course, the big shots never listen. But let me say, if you believe in the keys, you don't have to abandon campaigning. I'm not suggesting that. But we could have a very different, much more edifying and important kind of campaigning. Instead of campaigning based on sound bites and attack strategies, my recommendation, which I've been issuing for decades and they don't listen to, campaign like you're governing. Campaign to build a mandate and grassroots support for governing. Tell us the first five bills you introduce once you're elected. Give us your clear future vision for the country. Tell us the kind of persons you're going to put in your cabinet. Tell us what presidential commissions and advisory bodies you are going to set up. If you campaign like that, you're much better able when elected, or if elected, to govern successfully, which means you or your party is much more likely to win the next presidential election. You know, I was shocked in two softball interviews that Trump had on his second term. He had absolutely no vision, absolutely no ideas, absolutely no proposals. It was shocking. Campaign like you're governing is Lichtman's advice, and you could ignore it again. If you are wrong and Trump wins a second term, how would your system of 13 keys change? Would you take a key away? Would you add more? Would you abandon the system altogether? What happens to your system if you're wrong on November 3rd? Of course I could be wrong. I'm human. I don't have a pipeline to God like, you know, Donald Trump and Mike Pence suggest they do. My system is based on history. And I have to tell you, I'm 73 years old. I've been doing this for 40 years, and I still get butterflies in my stomach every time I make a prediction. Just think about it. I am putting myself out there with advanced predictions every four years. That's a pretty precarious perch to be on. If I'm wrong, and you know, I'd have to see exactly what happened in the election, I don't think it would be because of the keys. I think it would be because of these two external factors that I've identified for you, that we don't have a free and fair election because of voter suppression. That's what happened in Florida in 2000. Bush won Florida by 537 votes and won the presidency. That's right, you predicted Gore. Yeah, but thousands of African-American votes, which are 95% plus for Gore, were suppressed. On a fair election, Gore would have won by tens of thousands of votes going away. So, And it was that election that, d- that made you decide to change from predicting popular vote winner to overall election? Not immediately. Not immediately, because my next three predictions were so clear. Bush in 2004, and besides, a Republican was not going to win the popular vote and then lose the Electoral College. And then overwhelmingly for Obama in 2008, 2012. So while I was concerned after 2000, it didn't really, in a practical sense, come into play until 2016, when I just predicted a Donald Trump win because of the imbalance between the Democrats netting an extra five to six million votes in Florida and New York and not counting at all in the Electoral College. So that was my odyssey there. Now, about being wrong, if I'm wrong, I'll have to see you know, what happened. But it's likely because of voter suppression and because the Russians have just messed up our election. You'd mentioned that in 2016 when you predicted that Trump would win. Uh, that he sent you a note saying, congrats, Professor, good call with his very distinctive signature. Have you heard from him since your prediction for 2020 came out? I'm hoping to. I'm (laughs) hoping even for him to attack my predictions. Think of what that'll do to book sales. (laughs) Trump has not responded, but his 
campaign spokesperson has responded. And of all people, Rush Limbaugh has responded. And I have to say, I was pretty pleased with their responses. They were very respectful. They didn't attack me personally. They didn't call me a left-wing tool, which would be hard since I predicted Trump in 2016. They just, Limbaugh was very respectful of, of my track record. He just said, you know, maybe, you know, he won't be right this time. And the campaign spokesperson said, well, voters will elect the next president, not a professor. Pretty mild stuff coming from Limbaugh on the Trump campaign. So I think I've gained a little bit of respect for the fact that I don't make political predictions. I make impartial scientific predictions. Well, Professor Alan Lichtman, author of many books, including the latest edition of The Keys to the White House, a surefire guide to predicting the next president. You've correctly predicted the outcome of every election since 1994, and I am so grateful that you talked to me today. Thank you so much. Awesome interview. Great questions. Take care. Next. I deal with death and destruction professionally, sort of on a day-to-day basis, and I I confess sometimes it, it does get to me, too. And the doomsday clock is probably the most public manifestation of that. Hear how close we are to total annihilation, according to the good people who control the doomsday clock. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. You just heard Alan Lichtman's prediction for who's going to win the 2020 election, and he's been right about every election since 1994. But its accuracy depends on, among other things, voter turnout. Of course, your votes will have an effect on more than who becomes the next U.S. president. Your vote could impact big issues like nuclear proliferation, climate change, and the erosion of truth and facts. My next guest thinks about these things a lot. Professor Herb Lynn is a senior research scholar and Hank J. Holland Fellow in Cyber Policy and Security at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and he's a member of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, a nonprofit organization led by a group of scientists who, among other things, are the keepers of the doomsday clock. Now, if you haven't heard of the Doomsday Clock, it all started with the Manhattan Project, which was the codename for the American-led effort to create an atomic weapon during World War II. Right after the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, former Manhattan Project scientists formed the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Their mission has been to inform the public about threats to the survival and development of humanity due to nuclear risk, disruptive technologies, and more recently, climate change. To convey the degree of our peril, they introduce the metaphorical doomsday clock. Midnight equals human annihilation. The original setting back in 1947 when they debuted it was seven minutes to midnight. Over the decades, the hands have moved quite a bit. In 1991, after the Cold War, when the U.S. and the Soviet Union signed the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, cutting nuclear weapons arsenals, the clock was set to 17 minutes to midnight, the furthest away it's been since the clock came to be. Every January, they reveal the updated time. In 2019, because of the twin threats of nuclear weapons and the increasing effects of climate change, the clock was set at two minutes to midnight. I asked Professor Herb Lynn, when the group of scientists get together every year to evaluate this tiny planet's apocalyptic symptoms, how do they all agree on the time? It's a consensus process. A substantial majority of the board has to agree on it at every meeting. 
there are some people who say, let's push it forward. Some people say, let's push it back. Some people stay the same. And we argue about it. We have different specialties on the board. Some people are worried about climate change. Some people think about nuclear war. Some people think about threats from emer other emerging technologies and so on. I'm generally knowledgeable about climate change, but I'm no, by, in no means by an expert on it. And so I, I will listen very carefully to my colleagues who are climate change experts, and I will learn from them. And sometimes I push back, but uh, so you know that doesn't sound right. And says, you know, but then they explain to me why I'm wrong and, and so on. There are interesting ways of engaging in a give and take between different disciplines. There's no attempt to sort of come to a common consensus on, on the currency. Nothing like uh, you reduce, the, the nuclear gets X points and climate gets Y points or, or something like that. If only it were that simple, right? Right, that, that's right, that's right. There's no, nothing like that. The clock has uh, started out as an attempt to depict uh, how close we were to one particular threat, that is the threat of nuclear war. And we regarded that as, at, at that point as, as an existential threat to humanity. Over time, as the world uh, goes on, in 2007, 60 years later, the bulletin includes climate change. And this is a big deal. Now, this is not a catastrophe in the sense of hundreds of millions of people dying in half an hour. That, it's not that kind of catastrophe. But it's a long-term catastrophe. It's something that unfolds not on the time scale of a digital clock, but more like an hourglass or something like that. I mean, we, and, I mean I'm, we have lots of arguments as to whether or not it should be an hourglass or a clock or both of them or whatever, never, but never mind that. You know, this is a long-term issue where, where the temperature rise in climate over the long term. It's like the frog in the boiling pot of water. That's correct. That's correct. And the concern is that it might tip the uh, equilibrium of the earth into uh, a state that is unsuitable for human life, at least on the scale that we know it. You would not be talking about you know, billions of people dying in two years, but you might well be talking about billions of people dying over decades. That's a possibility too. So that, that becomes, that you think about that as an existential threat to, to humanity, but it's a long-term one. Then you start thinking later on, another 10 years later, about the emergence of other technologies. So, for example, I had an article in the bulletin about a year ago on what I called the existential threat from cyber-enabled information warfare. What do I mean by that? To me, it's not an existential threat to humanity in the sense of people's lives being lost, but it's an existential threat to civilization. What is civilization? I mean, what makes modern civilization work? And that's the ability of people to get along with each other. That's the ability of people to reason together, to solve problems. That's the ability of people to come to uh, some sort of common fact base and so on. And at the very least, cyber-enabled information warfare makes it impossible for groups to come together on even a shared set of facts. Can you give me an example for what you mean? Well, uh, a non-climate example would be Whose crowd was bigger at, at the inauguration? Uh, was it Trump's or Obama's? You know, and, and, and that was the, the infamous interview by a White House press secretary who says, no, we, we have alternative facts. This is a crazy situation. And where feelings become more important than reality, 
Newt Gingrich was quite straightforward about it. He said, you can go with the facts. I'll go with how people feel. And it doesn't matter whether they're wrong. They go with how people feel. Well, I mean, <laughs> uh, so, you know, in that kind of an environment, you can't make any progress. And so, you know, you, you, you get into the arguments about, you know, is the climate changing at all? And then you point to the, the fact you have a snowstorm, a uh, freak snowstorm in, in August and, and, and say, no, no, it's not happening. It's that kind of uh, nonsense. When you get together every year to talk about this, and you've come to a decision about where we are and how far away we are from midnight, how does it feel to walk out of that meeting? Sobery. It's a, I can tell you, I'm a bummer at parties. I would talk to you. Thank you. Uh, I deal with death and destruction uh, and doom on a professionally, sort of on a day-to-day basis. And I, I confess sometimes it, it does get to me too. And the doomsday clock is probably the most public manifestation of that. Uh, and when the clock has moved back, I cheered. And when the clock moves forward, I boo. I mean, I cry. And these days I cry harder. Society is based on institutions, not on individuals. What makes society enduring is institutions. And when you see attacks on the institutions that provide social coherence and stability, the weather forecasters, disease modelers and, and so on that's tragic you know if you don't have those things you're subject to the whims and perceptions of the guys who claim they are leaders what this is an impossible question i'll give you but i have a feeling you like impossible questions what do you think the people who started this clock 73 years ago would think about the state of our world right now and do you think that they'd be surprised that we'd be so close to midnight in all this time, or would they be pleased, I guess, that it took so long to get here? I don't know the answer, of course. I'll make an observation. In the late 40s and early 50s, the clock went to two minutes before midnight. Nuclear weapons loomed large in everybody's mind. The world went up to, I think, 70,000. Seven followed by four zeros. 70,000 nuclear weapons at its peak. There's an old story, a true story, about Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, who, as you may remember, was a former general himself. The military came in to see him with a request for 400 nuclear missiles, each with a single warhead. And as related by his science advisor, his reaction to that was, 400 missiles? Why don't we just go crazy and build 10,000 of them? I mean, this was in the 50s. And we went to 70,000 of them, seven times that amount. And then the curve started to go down. And it went down. And it went down. The world has seen lots of conflicts before, since World War II. Many of those conflicts involving at least one side having nuclear weapons. We could have used nuclear weapons in Korea. We could have used them in Vietnam. We could have used them in Iraq. We could have used them in Afghanistan. 
We could have used them everywhere. We didn't use them anywhere. That is a remarkable statement. So there's hope in that. There is hope in that. And probably the biggest hope that uh, I felt was in the late 1980s. I have a recording of the playing of Ode to Joy, Beethoven's Ode to Joy, now renamed Ode to Freedom, jointly between the East and West Berlin Philharmonic Orchestras at the Brandenburg Gates in Berlin. And I listened to it, and when I know it's that particular recording, that one still sends chills up my spine. Who would have thought that? But of course, it's a long time between 1990 and now. Where I cry most is to see what has happened since then. Because there was so much hope and so much progress in the 90s. And it all seems to be going away. So there's hope and there's sadness, both. That was Professor Herblin of Stanford University and the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And you're hearing that recording of Beethoven's Ode to Joy, or Ode to Freedom, that he was talking about. In addition to it being performed by orchestras and choirs from East and West Berlin, they were joined by musicians from America, Russia, France, and Great Britain, the four countries who still had a formal presence in that city. It was conducted by Leonard Bernstein on Christmas Day in 1989 near the Brandenburg Gates, just six weeks after the Berlin Wall came down. The concert hall was filled to capacity, and thousands of people watched it from the streets in the rain and near-freezing temperatures as it was projected onto screens overhead. It would be the first Christmas that East and West Berliners would spend together in 28 years. We get back from the break. If we're doing stupid things and we continue to do stupid things, the problems are going to get worse. Find out what time it is on the Doomsday Clock for 2020. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Professor Herb Lynn of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists is with me today. His team of big thinkers is responsible for the doomsday clock, which shows how close humankind is to midnight or total annihilation. When we left off with Professor Lynn, we were talking about hope, 
And I asked him, considering all that's going on in the world right now, what kind of potency hope has for him? That's a very hard question to answer. You know, I, I was just out, you know, I live in San Francisco and, and I was out for a walk a couple of days ago and, and I walked by my favorite ice cream store and there was a, a woman out there with her two kids and they're both sitting there happy as can be just eating ice cream, you know, in the middle of a pandemic. And I looked at her and I realized and I said to her, you know, not all is lost when you can still eat ice cream. It was the happiest thing that she had heard in weeks, apparently. Um, she started to laugh and cry at the same time. In the meantime, her, her kids were still oblivious to the entire thing, just eating their ice cream. You know, not all is lost for me to still eat ice cream. There are still some pleasures in life. At the same time, I mean, I, I, I feel that to the extent that I have a mission in life, it's to try to sensitize others. I'm at a university. I teach. I try to give people a sense of, of what is at stake. I try to make it personal. So I'll give you a, an example of this. There, so there is an online simulator called Nuke Map. You detonate a nuclear weapon at a certain altitude of a certain yield over any coordinates in the world. And it'll give you some, you know, cities, you know, farmland, oceans, whatever. And it'll do all sorts of calculations for you to say what the expected damage radius is and based on population density charts on how many people die and so on. I say, you know, sort of explode a, you know, a Hiroshima-sized bomb over a city that you know well. Calculate the lethal radius of it against the map and, you know, how many people die and so on. And that's all sort of pretty straightforward, all pretty technocratic. Then I say the following. Assume that this weapon goes off at noon on a Wednesday, that is the middle of the work week. This is a city that you know well. Provide a list of the people that you know who are now dead. Provide the names of the buildings and places that you've been to that are now rubble. Now, students complain about that. They say, this is a very upsetting exercise. I say, uh-huh. It's supposed to be. I want you to understand that you're under threat. People you love are under threat. And you need to understand that. And, you know, sometimes it has an effect on students. I have a perfectly timed ice cream truck in my background just in time for the big reveal and I'm not sure there's such a thing as like a sad drum roll but according to the bulletin of the atomic scientists in January of 2020 the time on the doomsday clock is 100 seconds how do we get there and have we been there before no we've never been here before and so the interesting question is why? You know, and if you want to argue between it should have been 15 seconds, you know, 150, you know, it, it should have, we should have moved it on 15 seconds or 30 seconds or 20 seconds. I mean, that's sort of not the point, okay? It wasn't one second, which would have said trivial. It wasn't 50 seconds, which would have said really, really, really bad. It was a moderate amount, okay? And so 20 was as good as a number. And I just point out that 
um, 120 seconds, which is two minutes, minus 20 is 100. Okay, so if we had said that's now 105 seconds to midnight, I mean, that went, you know, so, but never mind that part, okay. The, the question is, why is it more dangerous now than it has ever been before? I think the answer to that lies in not just the nature of the problem. The nature of the problem is worse, and it's sort of a continuing thing that gets worse and worse, right? So, you know, you continue to emit carbon dioxide into the air, for example, at the rate that you're, you're, you're doing it, every year it gets worse. If you don't turn that around, that's bad, okay? So you would expect that this year, so if you haven't done anything to turn around, this year would be worse than last year. So you'd expect that. If we're doing stupid things and we continue to do stupid things, the problems are going to get worse. So it's worse in that sense. But there's another sense in which it's worse too. And this is probably the more important thing that, that, that certainly influenced my thinking uh, about it, which is that we used to have functional institutions that, whose job it was to help protect us against all of this stuff. In 1952 or 53, whenever the bulletin advanced the clock to two minutes, okay, there was a functional state department and we had a functional president who actually was able to generate some national consensus and, and, and so on. He actually understood something about war and, and so on and respected the generals and so on. So it doesn't mean he didn't have fights with them, but there was a respect there. Scientific expertise was valued. They didn't do, always do this, what the scientists said, but scientific respect, the expertise was valued. In the current environment, Institution after institution after institution is denigrated and insulted, made fun of, and undermined repeatedly. Public health, law enforcement, media, and these institutions are what provide social stability. And what does social stability mean? Social stability means the ability to be able to address problems in the long term that exceed one person's lifetime or one president's term. You need that kind of continuity. And it takes a long time to build up that expertise and a short time to destroy it. Look at all the talented people who are leaving government right now. Government is, a, you know, is, is, a, is an essential aspect of life. Like it or not. Yes. The, the institutions are what keep us, provide the guardrails. And if you take away the guardrails, we run off the road. What's between 100 seconds and midnight? There are many things. The election is one of them, but it's not the only thing. It's achieving the political will to do things that are hard. It is a, in some ways, a counterintuitive notion that more weapons don't make you safer. Having more nukes around does not make you safer. People have no idea what a nuclear weapon is. I mean, you see people fighting over masks. I mean, what kind of, what, what, what kind of, world is that? And not just people who refuse to wear masks, but who don't want me to wear a mask. 
that's just that's just very weird. So in terms of an indicator, if we have a whole lot of people saying that not only do they not want to wear masks, but they don't want you to wear a mask, doesn't sound like it's giving you much hope for some of the even bigger issues, which there are. Well, what I just described is a, is a necessary but not sufficient condition. I said the election is one. But I, I guarantee you that if Biden wins the election, even if he wins the election by a landslide, and even if he takes, you know, the Democrats take control of both houses of Congress, guarantee you the problems are not going to go away. This election will result in an environment in which some very large fraction of the American public is going to be really, really upset. And healing that is going to be a big deal. And before you, you're going to have to deal with that problem before you deal with anything else. Is there a point of no return? I, I don't know what you mean by that. Are there things that are irreversible? Sure. Do they matter? I don't know. Climate change has, has been known to create uh, the extinction of certain species. That's irreversible. Does it matter? I don't know. So some things are irreversible. Let's pretend for a moment that you had a nuclear weapon explode in... Hartford. Hartford. A small city, not one of the 10 largest, but, you know, it's an urban area and so on. The U.S. would never recover from that. You might say, why is that true? What do you mean the U.S. would never recover from that? It's just one city. I mean, you'd be dead. I mean, there'd be a bunch of people to be dead and so on. But what happened afterwards is that the search for blame would go on in such a way that the United States afterwards would not be the same country as it was before. Imagine what happens to your civil liberties under those circumstances. We'd be talking about more than masks. Imagine the security state that comes about because one nuke went off. And this is a tiny planet. Right. There is a picture of the Earth taken from the Voyager spacecraft at about the distance between Uranus and Neptune that was taken at the behest of Carl Sagan. The pale blue dot. And... It's about one-fourth of a pixel in that. It's a tiny, 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 tiny thing. It says that that little dot is where all of the wars have ever been, that we know of in the universe have been fought. All of the people tortured, all of the dictators, all of the kings have killed and tortured and maimed and, and, and so on all over that little dot. But it's also the place where you've seen acts of compassion and hope and love. All of the love and all of the compassion and all of the hope in the world is on that little dot. To the best of our knowledge, it's the only place in the universe where any of those things exist. Is there, is there any hope in, 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 in all of this? Well, I don't know. But if it's anywhere, it's here. It has to be here. They only get one. That's right. So it has to be hope somewhere. 
you know, I, I don't know if I offer it to you. You're the messenger. That's right. And there's an ice cream truck outside. <laughs> That's right, there is. So if there is something to be done besides late at night uh, visitations to this website to see what Hartford would look like eviscerated, what can we do? In this season of all seasons, vote. That's the first thing. Uh, let, let, let me give you a line which is not original. Okay, I'm, I'm stealing this from a friend of mine who recently wrote a book about uh, her father's experience being a photographer uh, sent to record the aftermath of the Hiroshima Nagasaki bombings. It's a very good book. It's called Choosing Life. It's written by his daughter, who discovered after he had died, he'd been the photographer of the aftermath about a year later and so on, and interviewed many, many survivors and so on to see what the bomb had done to them. And she has the following line in it. Public health matters. Climate change matters. Black lives matter. But none of them matter if they can't solve this one. We can't solve the problem of how to keep ourselves from killing ourselves. And it's true. And it's not to denigrate, to minimize the importance of public health or of climate change or of, of racial justice. All those are very important things. But none of it matters if we're not alive. That was Professor Herblin, Senior Research Scholar and Hank J. Holland Fellow in Cyber Policy and Security at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and a member of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. You can find more information and subscribe to our show at ctpublic.org audacious. You can send me your thoughts and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening and for voting. <laughs>